Well, this morning is the, the first Sunday of the month, uh, which is the Sunday that we always participate in communion together. And whenever we practice communion together here, uh, we always slow down a bit and teach from the scriptures on this important historic Christian practice. But we've, we've, we've never rushed through it, but what we want to do this morning is we want to slow down even more and take really the entire message this morning and, and focus on communion and, and what it's all about. And so unlike usual, what I'm going to do this morning is rather than taking one text from the scriptures and working straight through that text, what we're going to do is we're going to look through the entire Bible in a sense and really get an, an overview from the entire Bible to really give us a biblical framework for what this practice of communion is, is all about, and uh, so I think it'll be helpful for us, and uh, it'll be good for us to do that. Um, anybody in here like to eat? You like to eat? I, I think we all like to eat, right? Some of us more than, more than others. I was, I was tracking back through my life a little bit this week, and I was thinking about the fact that um, there are, are some meals that really in my life stand out as very special meals or meals that they're just burned into my memory. And I was thinking back through some of those, like the one when I was in elementary school and I was sitting across from the cafeteria table with this best friend of mine. And we were, all, we were always goofing up in, in lunch period together and, and we were just goofing off together. And I remember this particular occasion, we were goofing off and, and I had some chocolate milk and I was just chugging my chocolate milk and right in the middle of a mouthful of chocolate milk, he did something particularly goofy and I just spewed all over this guy. He was just completely covered in chocolate milk and our friendship was never the same, but uh, it, was, it was awesome. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget my, my first date with my wife, Becky. Um, I'll never forget that. We went to this restaurant in Virginia called Shakers. And I remember I just had the picture of us sitting at this table. It was a double date, and so we had another couple there. And I just remember we ordered the same meal, and I remember she ate so much faster than I did. She was done long before I was, probably because I'm a talker. And then also she ate the whole thing, and I couldn't eat half of it. And so she was totally embarrassed, but I'll never forget that one. I have to joke her about that, that I have a girl who can, who can eat. She's tiny, so uh, she, she can't be offended by that. But... Uh, Man, I was just so, I was so impressed. And I tell you guys, I was like a smooth operator with this girl. You guys would have been so impressed. If you were a fly on the wall, you would have said, that guy is awesome, awesome. So that, that was a good one. I'll never forget that one. Another one I'll never forget is our, our wedding reception. You guys can remember yours, I'm sure, well. I remember how nervous I was. I couldn't even eat the food. I just, it was there. It was cold. I remember the jazz band that was playing. I remember, I remember everything about, about that. I remember how nervous I was when we were dancing, and, and my nervous tick when we were dancing, because I knew everybody was, I've been so afraid of this for years. Everybody watching us on that first dance, that my nervous tick was, every time I just got so nervous, I would just go and kiss her. And, and we look back at the video, and I was kissing her every five seconds. It was terribly awkward. But I'll never forget that, that reception. I'll never forget the, the meal. It was a good one. I'll also never forget the, the, the day we found out that we were having our first baby, Isaiah. We went out and had a celebratory meal at our favorite restaurant in Worcester. And I remember going into this, this restaurant, and we, you know, we didn't have much money, but we were ready to splurge because it was a big occasion, and uh, you could spend a lot of money at this restaurant. So we went to this restaurant, and we were telling everybody, we're pregnant, we're pregnant, strangers, we were telling them we were pregnant, we were so excited. I remember sitting down and having, 
you know, the, the appetizer, the entree. We went all the way through dessert, and we, we went big on this one, even though we didn't have any money. And I remember across the way, there was this, this circular booth, and there were a bunch of Italian, loud, boisterous Italian men in this booth. And I remember there were about, it looked like probably at least maybe, maybe four generations worth of guys there. I mean, a really old guy with a raspy voice, and then the loud, boisterous ones were the rest of them. And I just remember watching them, and, and if I can, if you can pardon me being stereotypical, Becky and I were really thinking, you know, I think these guys, you know, might be the family, if you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I was watching these guys, and, 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 and so at one point in the, in the meal, one of the guys got up to, to get a picture of all of them, and so I just said, hey, you want me to take the picture so you can get in? He was like, yeah, thanks, man, that'd be great. So he gets in the picture, I take the picture, and then we come back, sit down, and go about our meal. Later, the, the waitress comes up and says, um, I, have, I have this bottle of wine for you. It's, it's yours. And I said, what are you talking about? Goes, this guy's over there. Bought you the wine. And Becky looks over and goes, guys, thank you so much. But I'm pregnant. Yeah. You know, and I was so excited. And they said, oh, congratulations. You know, and we were so excited about it. And so we go through the meal. They get up and leave. And we spent big money. And, and then we go to, to give the, the waitress our credit card. And she says, oh, the guys that were sitting over there t- took care of your whole meal. We're like, you got to be kidding. It was like a $100 ticket. And we were, so, we were so excited. And we told everybody for like the next week, these guys we don't even know paid for our, our meal. So if you know any mobsters, tell them thank you because that's who they were. It was, it was good. It was a really good one. And then, of course, I'll never forget the, the meal where Becky and I were sitting again in Worcester. And we talked for the very first time about doing this, about starting a church in Boston, really kind of a special, special meal for us. But these are, for me, some historic meals in my life. And maybe you can think back through your life of just maybe some historic meals, meals that really were, were markers. And in the Bible, we read through the scriptures and we see that there are some historic meals that really help us to shape our view of, of communion, meals that really shape and, and, and really thread biblical history. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to review these five meals together. And, and before we do this, here's what I want to do. I want to think about meals for a minute. I want you just to kind of think about what are, what are meals for, what do they do, what are they all about. And, and, and so as a way of preface, I'll say this, that whenever I use the word meal this morning, what I'm talking about is a shared meal, where you're sitting with somebody and you're having a meal with somebody. For me, there's probably nothing more depressing in the world than seeing somebody have to eat alone. For me, that's just so sadly, going to a diner and seeing, you know, a guy sitting there alone, I always just want to go pull up beside him and start talking to him. Then they think I'm a, I'm a weirdo, which I am. So, uh, but for me, that's really, you know, that's depressing to me. And so uh, we're talking this morning about shared meals whenever I talk about meals. So let's think about about meals. Meals are often um, enjoyed in conjunction with some kind of special occasion, right? Let me, let me give you some examples of this. Uh, one might be meals are often an occasion for celebration, like a wedding reception, right? And you have a big meal. And just another thing, I got to tell you about my wedding reception while I'm thinking of. I just got to get this off my chest. And so I was so nervous. I told you I couldn't eat hardly anything. And, and so I, I, we were so excited about this cake. It was, it was cake cheesecake, cake, cheesecake. It was just, oh, we were so excited about it. We tasted it months prior when, you know, planning the wedding, and it was, we were so excited to have this cake. I was too nervous to eat it, and I said, well, 
we get home from the, you know, from the honeymoon, and we'll have the top of the cake ready. And, and so we come home from the honeymoon. I remember going straight to Becky's parents' house and saying, okay, where's that cake? I'm ready to eat it. And they said, yeah, about that. Um, on the way home from the reception, all of the bridesmaids ate it. The sneaking bridesmaids ate the top of the cake. I was, I'm all sentimental, so I was also thinking about doing the take it and put it in the freezer, freeze it, pull it out a year later thing. But the, the bridesmaids ate my cake, by the way, so now that that's off my chest. So, so weddings are, are an occasion uh, when you have a, a meal for celebration. Meals are often occasions for remembrance as well. I mentioned this funeral that we went to this past week of this, this lady who was very supportive of what we're doing here who passed away with breast cancer. And, and after the memorial service, we, we gathered and had a big meal and everybody stood around and, and talked about her and shared stories about her. I remember sharing a story about how I went to Guatemala with her and how she was really just loving on a bunch of uh, orphans at an orphanage and how she was playing with the kids. And just, uh, you know, meals are a time you come together and you, you remember. Meals are also often occasions for, for fellowship. And, and I'm really excited that fellowship has become such a Christianized word. But fellowship has, has a, you know, a meaning even probably before we, we stole the word, which is a good thing that we stole the word. But fellowship is, is really when you gather around some kind of common interest. Maybe people will fellowship under... Uh, a sport, or people can fellowship under the common interest of, of a music or a hobby. And so we fellowship around a, a common interest, a shared interest. We also have in academia, you can join a fellowship where you become a fellow under a common, a common interest. And for Christians, we fellowship around this common Holy Spirit that we have inside of us. We fellowship around the common faith that we have in Christ. And so that's our fellowship. And meals are often occasions for fellowship and we gather together and we really share life together we commune together enjoy each other's common point of community and another thing i was thinking through is is meals are often occasions where you sit down and you handle some business if you think about that many many business people at the end of the month they pull out their wallet or their purses and they gather all of their receipts and they do an expense report of all the meals that they had or all the coffees that they had with with somebody who they were doing business with and their their company typically pays for it or they'll 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 add them up from all the people that they were trying to to do business maybe a potential salesperson or contact and and, and so meals are often occasions for, for doing business. There are also occasions, obviously, for getting to know people. I love having people over to my house for dinner just to get to know them, and it's a perfect way to do that over, over food. Another thing is meals are occasions to serve, and meals are occasions to show hospitality where the person who prepared the food or is hosting the meal can set the table, they can prepare the food. It's their way of saying to the person that they're, they're entertaining, I, I care for you, I want to meet your needs, I, I welcome you. And so obviously there, there are often occasions for hospitality and for service. Meals are also often occasions for families to connect. One of the greatest things that happens just about daily in my family, I love it, is coming home and, and, and getting before the, the dinner table with the family and sitting down and just talking and talking about our day. Now, my, my boys are two and four, so we talk about things that probably are not even remotely interesting to you, like what was on Elmo this morning or what the theme of school was today. Was it the letter B? Was it, you know, was it stop, drop, and roll? I mean, it's just, our, our conversations are goofy, but I love 
getting together around the, the meal, uh, the dinner table with my family, and just being a family and talking. And, and you can probably think through all kinds of different examples of, of what meals are occasions for, but these are just a few to get us kind of thinking as we move into talking about communion this morning. But the point is that, that shared meals are, are special and a very important part of all cultures and really all of history. Meals are, are very important. So with all of that said, with that understanding, let's look at the, the five meals that thread biblical history this morning. And so we'll work through each of those. They really give us a framework for our proper understanding of communion. You ready? Here we go. Meal number one. Meal number one is this. Forbidden fruit. You've heard of the, the story of forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve. Back to, to Genesis chapter 3, we know that, that God made his most special creation. He made mankind, and Adam and Eve are made to know God, to worship God, to enjoy God, because God didn't need them. He didn't create mankind because he needed them. He created mankind so that, that someone could enjoy him. He wanted to show his greatness to somebody. But that was... That was short-lived. We know it was short-lived that they ate of the fruit. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God said that they can enjoy any tree they can have from, from any tree that they wanted except for the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And so it was this one requirement, one request of God, yet you know the story, they, they ate of the tree. You live in a one-rule society and you eat of the tree after being tempted and invited to eat of the tree by Satan through the, the serpent. And so I want you to catch this. This meal, this forbidden fruit, was, was the, the first meal in our human history recorded, and it was a meal without God. It was a meal without God. And it was a meal with who? It was a meal without God, so it was a meal with Satan. It was one of those meals of, of fellowship where they really gather around a common interest, and that common interest was the desire to be like God. That common interest was insubordination to God, right? So it was a fellowship meal. It was probably also, we could see it as a, a business meal where they shake hands with the devil and they say, I'm leaving that partner and I'm moving to, to this business partner. I'm leaving the Lord. I'm turning from the Lord and I, I'm doing business with you. I'm on your team now. But you know the story. They were deceived. They were majorly deceived. That never happens in business, fortunately, right? They were, they were deceived. And, and Genesis chapter 3 tells us of the curse that we all receive because of Adam and Eve's dealings with, with the devil. And remember, they chose it, not God. They, they chose this deal with the devil, and so the, the curse was upon them. And think about this curse. This curse was the natural result of turning from God. If God is the creator, God is the one who breathes life into mankind, turning from that God, you don't have that life. And so the natural result of the, the curse was death because of separation from the life giver. Yet God has this tremendous grace, right, that he constantly pours upon us and God pursues us. And rather than giving them what they deserve, he, per, he pursues them. And, and what they deserved was death and death immediately. Now, obviously, they received death. We all received death. It was our, our natural result from turning from the life giver. But really, if you look at that, that commandment in, in Genesis chapter 2.17, it was death immediately. It says, the day, God says, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they die that day? 
No, they didn't, they didn't die that day. And so he, he gives them, them grace and he pursues them. And so really every breath that we take, another breath that we get where we receive life, it's God's grace. Because we're not surely dying in that next second. They do die. Our bodies are physically dying. Our, our bodies are obviously spiritually, our souls are passing away, dying. But he gives us grace. And so meal number one there. Is, is that meal where they're doing a dealing with the, the devil. It's the meal of the forbidden fruit. Here's, here's meal number two where it really brings us to now is the meal, the Passover meal. You've heard of, of the Passover meal where God pursues and God saves. God has now at this point in history called a people to himself. He's calling a people that he can save from death, though they chose the death by dealing with the devil. He's calling them to himself. Historically, these people were the Hebrews, right? The, the Jewish people, the Israelites. And, and their story really is carried over into application to us as Christians today, though historical, also very symbolic. And, and, and we today are those called of God in that we have placed faith in Jesus and trusted him to save us. And the story of, of Passover is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 11 and Exodus chapter 12 where we see God's people have been made slaves to Egypt. And they've been there for over, over 400 years under this, this awful pharaoh, this awful king. They are now slaves there. But God determines, I'm going to save them. I'm going to bring about Moses, and he will be the leader through which I will use to, to free them from that captivity. And so Moses, you know, the story goes before Pharaoh over and over and over and over again, saying, let my people go. But Pharaoh continues to refuse, and so God continues to send plague after plague after plague to get the Pharaoh's attention. And then the final plague, the tenth plague, uh, being God taking the firstborn child of all the people in Egypt. And that's the final plague. And so in Exodus chapter 12, we see what God does is he commands all his people, all the people of Israel, to take a, a, a lamb, a young, healthy lamb without defect, and, and use that lamb for sacrifice. And, and, and this is, is God's way of, of preparing people for the coming of Jesus, who John the Baptist later says, Jesus is, behold, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in and, and Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, you might want to write this down and read it in your own time, but it says that blood symbolizes life. So there's other things we think of, obviously, that symbolize life. We think of, of, of breath. We think of a heartbeat. We can think of maybe the brain. We can think of all kinds of fatality organs that, that if we lose that, we're done, right? Blood symbolizes, in the Bible, historically, life. And so God tells the Israelite congregation to, to then take the, the blood of this lamb and put it on the, the doorpost. And in doing this, what they're doing is they're saying, we put faith in God. We trust in God. So we put the blood of the lamb here, and we trust that God is going to save us. His wrath, when it comes over all the children, the firstborn children, his wrath will pass over us. And so we get the name Passover, and so salvation was found in the blood of the Lamb. And now, maybe for some of you who, who are familiar with the New Testament, but not really familiar with the Old Testament, hopefully that starts to tie things in for you now that we hear Jesus as the blood, uh, or Jesus as the Lamb who sheds his blood. And so, likewise today, our salvation comes in trusting in the shed blood of the Lamb, Jesus, that long-awaited sacrificial Lamb of God. And it's just incredibly beautifully 
symbolic. And, and as you study the life of Jesus and you hold it up against the, the Old Testament system, there's just so many parallels. There are so many ways in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And it's just so profound and, and so crazy, all the, the fulfillments that Jesus in, in and of himself fulfills. That it was just impossible to fake it. It was absolutely impossible for Jesus to have been a fraud and, and, and fake all these things that parallel so well to the Old Testament. So, after the Passover night, Israel leaves Egypt, but they leave Egypt with some help from the Egyptians, right? The, the Egyptians are saying, please get out of here. Get out of here. We don't want to die ourselves. And so they, they, they help them get out of there. And, and, and Israel is now freed from bondage in Egypt, and likewise, we as Christians can be free from the bondage of Satan and sin and death and, and that curse upon our lives by our faith in God and the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. And so Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, God says of the Passover, he says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. And so this meal was then continued year after year after year after year. It was Israel's greatest feast. It was Israel's greatest meal that they would gather together. And, and it happened every single year until the night that Jesus eats it before his death, which brings us to meal number three, the Last Supper. The Last Supper. And here we're going to turn in our scriptures, uh, the Bible, to that. So Matthew chapter 26, if you have a Bible, Matthew 26, verse 26, the, the words will also be on the screen. And then, as always, as you come in, you can grab one of the white Bibles in the corners there. And if you don't have a Bible of your very own, please take that white Bible and keep it. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take it and, uh, and use it. So Matthew 26, 26, the Last Supper. And many of you are, are probably very familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper. So maybe you can picture that. This is the Last Supper. And uh, Jesus, who is God, who has entered into humanity, living as one of us, and living as one of us really perfectly, living a life that we couldn't live, uh, dying the death that we deserve, not him, because he lived perfectly. He's, he's been on this earth, and, and he's been working his entire life towards the cross. And now the night before the cross... He's, a, he, he, he's practicing as a good Jewish man the, the Passover. He was one who, who was all, he visited the temple. He was one who always attended synagogue. And now as a good Jewish man, he's observing the Passover meal. And this is the last, I'll say it this way, this is the last necessary Passover meal. The last necessary Passover meal because Jesus then comes and fulfills it. And he's observing it with his disciples. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until th that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And we'll stop there, and uh, that's, that's our, our main text for the morning. Uh, but as I said before, we're not going to focus too long on one text. We're going to kind of get the framework here. But Jesus is in the middle of this feast with his disciples. We know that because it says, as they were eating. So as they were eating, he stuns them as they're about to get to the point where they eat the traditional 
unleavened bread, and, and as they were eating, they're about to eat it, and, and Jesus brings out this, this major adjustment to this thousand-year tradition, and he announces, this bread is my body. He says, this bread is, is my body, and, and, and the very next day, we know that his body would be pierced and beaten beyond recognition for our, our sin. And so, catch this. This is, this is kind of interesting. Historically, uh, Jewish people have used this bread called matzah for, for their, their Passover celebrations. And so let me just show you a picture of, of what this is as you see this. Maybe this will be helpful. This is, is matzah bread. And notice that this bread is both pierced. Historically, it's pierced, and it's also striped. And so let me just read you a, a scripture here as we think about this unleavened bread, uh, which is unleavened because of Exodus 13 and God's command, but it's also striped and, and pierced. Here's what, here's what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, 5 about Christ. He says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. And so we have this picture of him being wounded. We know he was pierced upon a cross. It says, by his stripes we are healed. We know that Jesus was striped upon his back with what is known as the cat of nine tails. And they, would, they flogged him 39 times, not 40. They gave mercy and only did 39 times, kind of trying to be, be funny and, and clever. And so they flogged him with 39 times. And many people died of, of, of just the flogging alone. And so he was pierced and he was striped. And so as we engage in, in communion, let that be for you a, a, a symbol. And, and as new Christians in the new covenant, we're not necessarily required to use matzah. We're not necessarily required to use unleavened bread in our observance of, of the Lord's Supper. Jesus was using it because he was practicing Passover. Occasionally we will use matzah for occasion like today so we can really see this, this imagery. Uh, but just know that we don't always use matzah bread. Uh, it's not required, commanded in Scripture. Now Jesus goes on in, 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 back in Matthew chapter 26, and then he lifts the cup. And he lifts the cup, and what does he say? He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. And so as we look at a, at a careful uh, study of all of the gospel accounts that include this, Matthew, Mark, and, and, and Luke, and, and we look through it, we can really start to see the timeline of where in the Passover meal Jesus drank this cup. And, and a careful look will show us that he's about to drink the, the third cup of the Passover meal. This third cup was known as the cup of redemption. And, and Jesus, as he's about to drink of the, the cup of redemption, he says, this wine represents my blood. This wine represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And so we have this covenant here where we trust now in Jesus's shed blood uh, for the forgiveness of, of sins. And when it came time then next for the traditional fourth cup, what does Jesus say about the fourth cup? He says he doesn't drink it. He says he's not going to drink it with them because he's going to wait and drink it with them until his kingdom comes, when his kingdom comes. And so he leaves them and he really leaves us waiting and, and anticipating his coming where his kingdom will be fully instated and we will have that cup, that fourth cup with him there. So from here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is also another uh, look back to Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 records that, that Jesus then commands them to continue the mill and to do it until he comes and do it in remembrance of him. Do it in remembrance of him. And so now what we're doing 
is no longer the Passover meal, but we're taking this meal in remembrance of Jesus. Now, just one verse down. It's, it's not included in, in the river guide there, but one verse down, Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. It says, they then sing a hymn together. We'll sing some hymns in a minute here. And then Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives where he will then be betrayed and, and then taken in for crucifixion. And so this meal that we see is the last, we'll call it necessary, Passover meal, the last necessary Passover meal, or the last supper. This brings us to the next one, meal number four, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake in in in, in just a few moments, the Lord's Supper. So now, about a little over seven weeks, 50 days after the, the last supper with Jesus, we see Christians now historically partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now let's think a little bit about, about the name of, of the Lord's Supper. Some of you have probably heard it called different things over the course of your life. Uh, really in the Bible, the only thing we see is it's called breaking of bread. And so historically it's been called the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table in light of the fact that Jesus at that last necessary Passover, it's his table, he sets it, he tells them what, what he's about to do about the new covenant. So it's been called the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've also heard it called uh, the Eucharist, which is from the, the Greek word Eucharistia, which means Thanksgiving. And so we come and we're thankful for what Jesus did on the cross, shedding his blood and having his, his body nailed and beaten uh, for our, our behalf. And we also know it's been called, obviously, communion as well because of the communion that we have with God or the fellowship that we have with God and the, the fellowship that we can have with each other because of what these elements represent, Jesus going to the cross. And you can really, here's the deal, you guys can call it whatever you want to call it. I would say this, it's probably best for you to call them each of these things with the appropriate context, their appropriate emphasis. And so when you're thinking of the Thanksgiving of the table, you can call it Eucharist. When you're thinking of the communion that we have with, with the Lord and with each other, you can call it communion. When you're thinking historically, you can call it the Lord's table, but just use the proper emphasis. Nonetheless, uh, the biblical example of Christians was to practice the Lord's table and to practice it with, with frequency. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul records uh, what Jesus says that night of the, the Last Supper. Here's what he says. He says that Jesus says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And so the stipulation is, you do it in remembrance of me, Jesus says. And then he says, do it as often as you do it, however often that is. Now, historically, many people have done it every single week. Other people have, have lessened it a bit to once a quarter even. Some people do it like us once a month, and, and they do that, many people, because they, they feel as though every week makes it become a little bit routine and a little bit meaningless for some people, certainly not all. But biblically, we can't really know how frequent the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Eucharist, uh, communion was, was practiced, but we do know that it was frequent. Here's why. Acts chapter 2, um, verse 42, I, I'll read this for you. It's really the first summary of the early church. The first summary, it goes through a narrative for the first two chapters. Then Acts chapter 2, 42, we get into the first summary. And as it summarizes the first church, here's what uh, Luke writes. He writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so we see that they were devoted, which means all of their heart was in it. Devoted also uh, insinuates regularity. So we know that there was regularity in what they're doing. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. 
Now, obviously, the apostles' teachings back then, it was verbal. The apostles were right in front of them, and they're, they're teaching them. They were devoted to that. They're often having occasions like this, but they're hearing from the apostles. They're devoted to that. Today, we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's why we teach from the Bible. It's recorded here, the apostles' eyewitnesses recorded in the Bible. That's why when I get up here and share with you, I'm not going to share Josh's thoughts on life. It's just not very helpful for you. We're going to share the apostles' teaching straight from the Scripture. That also helps us to go... Uh, keeps us from going astray into heresy and doing crazy things because we're talking about this and not about what I have to say. And they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. They were also devoted to fellowship. So they're devoted to being with each other around the common interest of Jesus in the unity of the Holy Spirit. It says they were devoted to, to prayers. And so they were a praying people. We need to be a praying people, constantly praying together, take advantage of opportunities in here, out there, pray together at home, on the phone, call people, be praying, be a praying people, pray together. Just before praying people, though, he says, into the breaking of bread and the prayers. Breaking of bread is this. Breaking of bread then included both communion as we know it here, like this, but then also Acts 2.46 says they were breaking bread in their, their homes. Listen to what it says, Acts 2.46. It says, And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And, and I want you to hear that. The, the communion continued into their homes, and they were doing so day by day. And so I want you to catch that this communion that we practice here this morning doesn't stop here, but this communion then continues into our homes. This should not be the extent of our communion. Uh, our communion here is with, with bread and wine and, and at our connection groups, our small group Bible studies throughout the, the week. Occasionally we'll, we'll practice communion as well, but it's not that alone. Our communion goes into meals in, in the body of Christ that we enjoy so that the meals that we have together really become an extension of what we're doing here this morning in our taking of the the Lord's Supper. And so whenever you gather together with other Christians, whenever you have meals with other Christians, I want you to begin to think communion. I want you to begin to think about the Lord's Supper. And I don't want to have to to create, as as a new church here, a program where we're forcing us to always have meals together. I'd much rather just become become natural for us, where, where many of us can step up and start inviting people to our houses and enjoy community and communion and, and really foster fellowship uh, our, ourselves. And, and since we are the church and we're united by the Holy Spirit and, and we're not united by social affinities and, and cultural affinities, I, I want to encourage you, when you invite people to, to have meals with you, be careful not to, to invite people that are just like you. And that's probably very natural for us, to, to invite people that are closest to us, share the, the same interests with us, but also be careful to invite people maybe who aren't like you. And so what that means is if you're a little bit older, and it doesn't take much to be a little bit older in this church. We kind of joke about our seniors ministry is for those who are 29 years or older, right, at this church. Uh, it doesn't take much here at this point in our history. But if you're a little bit older, um, I want to encourage you to invite some younger people and, and encourage them to have meals with you, to be with you, and to, to hang with you. And, and it's probably maybe goes against what we're used to, but it's very important. Titus chapter 2, um, 
it's written, it says that, that we should take advantage of these opportunities. Like ladies, it says that you should be looking for opportunity to teach younger ladies how to, how to love their husbands, how to mother children, how to, to keep a, a home that is orderly. You've got the experience. Guys, it tells you, older guys, to help younger guys. And younger, you know, maybe two years younger than you, maybe ten years, whatever that looks like. Uh, maybe somebody who's not simply younger in age, but younger in, in, in the faith. It says that us guys are to help younger guys learn to be self-controlled, which is a very constant you know, struggle for, for many guys. We're to help that. But the point is, we're to mix it up. We're to constantly mix it up. And that's a very important thing. And, and, and this can't happen if we simply show up to church and walk out the doors, show up to church and walk out the doors. But we have to take some initiative and, and, and invite people over, invite them to eat and to be generous with our, our open doors and generous with our, our cooking experience or lack thereof. If I invite you and I do it all alone without my wife, it would be you know ramen noodles for dinner. might throw a little hamburger in there or something. I don't know. We'll see. But that's disgusting, isn't it? I know. I was a college kid not too long ago. But communion, communion extends uh, beyond this into our homes, into restaurants. And uh, think of it that way. Think of your meals as an extension of this. So what that also then looks like is I would encourage some of you guys when you're out at a restaurant together, I would encourage you when you're at a home together, probably most commonly at a restaurant together, it's a little awkward. There's like 10 of you and you're going to pray, you know, by myself. Am I going to pray with everybody? I want to encourage you, somebody step it up and say, let's pray and, and pray and just really fully aware in your prayer that it is an extension of this. Pray, God, we thank you for the, the community that we have in you in the, the commonality of the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that what we're doing is, is honoring to you and be really mindful so that our meals are an extension of this. So I just want to maybe point that out to you as we think through communion a little bit. And so that's a very important piece. Now, before we, we look at the final meal, meal number five, as we just continue thinking here about this actual practice of, of the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, I think it's very important for us to, to, to think through some of the principles in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we won't look there, but I want you just to maybe write that down. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through, through 34. Paul maybe follows up even more and gives a little more into this, this idea of, of communion that the Christians were now practicing. Obviously, he says that the, the bread from Christ represents his body that was beaten beyond recognition in our place. The wine... Uh, for us, which is un- unfermented for some cultural reason, it represents the blood of, of Jesus. Um, but biblically, know this, biblically, blood was required for the forgiveness of, of sin. Back in, in Genesis chapter 3, let me just give you some examples of this. Blood was required, so that's why we think on, on the blood and the forgiveness of our sins. It was required for the forgiveness of sins. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, when they turned from God, before turning from God, it says they were, they were naked, but there was no shame in them. In Genesis chapter 3, when they turned, they were now naked and they were ashamed. They realized that they were, were naked. And so what do they do? You know the story, right? They gather fig leaves, they put them together and make some kind of covering for themselves. But if you know anything about leaves, we're looking, we see leaves everywhere right now, on the ground, on the roads, on the sidewalks, in our yards. What's going to happen to leaves? They're going to eventually get dry, they're going to crumble they're going to fall away. They're going to become dirt. And so this, this covering that they put on them, themselves to cover their shame is really only temporary. But what does God do out of his love for people? Remember, he could have said, it's over. I told you. 
But what does he do out of his love for people? He pursues them even more. What does he do? He, he takes two animals, kills them, uses their skin as a more permanent covering. And so animals had to die. Blood had to be shed. And so all the way back to the beginning, it was the shedding of blood that helped cover sin and, and, and shame. Also, as we were thinking earlier, the sacrificial lamb, blood was shed so that God's wrath would then pass over. Historically, it, it's always required for the covering of sin. So as we think of the blood, and, and as we take of, of the communion wine, remember of the blood of Christ that was required. Um, he was the perfect sinless sacrifice for our sins. And so think of that. Also know this, First Corinthians 11, Paul points out a few other things that I think I just want to mark for you. He says that it's reserved for for Christians alone, those people who have trusted by faith in the work of Christ. And so know that this is for for Christians. It's also an opportunity, Paul says, to repent of our sins. He says we are called to examine ourselves. And so before coming to communion, though the point of communion is the remembrance of Christ and community with who Christ is, also be careful to examine yourselves because it would be terrible for us to come to the communion table ignoring sin in our heart but thanking God for his covering of our sin. That would be hypocrisy. Paul goes so far as to say because of this hypocrisy, talking to the, the really messed up Corinthian church, he says because of this hypocrisy, some of you have become sick. Some of you have even died. He said it, not me. Some of you have even died, he says, because of your Hypocrisy. Now know this, not all sickness is a result of our, 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 our specific sin in our lives. But for this occasion, he says, some of you have died because of your hypocrisy. But the point is, don't take this lightly. Examine yourself. Examine the sin that you may be holding in your heart and ignoring. And then after doing this, he says, we do this proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So we do this over and over and over and over and over again. We're doing it proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, which brings us really to the final meal. The final meal, meal number five, is this. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage supper of the Lamb. I'll just give you Revelation 19.9. Revelation 19.9 says this. It says that we will be invited to what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So who's the Lamb? Jesus is the Lamb. Who's he marrying? We read in Scripture that he's marrying his bride, Corporately, yes. Guys, not you individually. That, that may be, feel kind of weird for you. Corporately, we are the bride. And Jesus is marrying his bride, the, the church. And so we will enjoy, he says at the end, a glorious meal with, with him. The marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be one of those meals of, of celebration. Isaiah chapter 25 verse 6 says that it will be a great feast. It says that, guys, you're going to love this. It says it's going to have the, the finest cuts of meat. We like that, right? And so it'll be good, yes. And then it goes on. It says that there will be, be choice wine at this, this feast. And so be thinking now that the marriage supper of the lamb that we will receive after over and over and over and over and over practicing communion until he comes. And so as we close, I want you to think on this. It's great to know as we kind of go through the entire biblical history and the, these five significant meals. It, it's, it's great to know that at, at meal number one, human history began with a meal eaten without God. But at meal number five, human history closes with a meal eaten with God. A meal without God and a meal with God where the effects of sin are no longer felt, 
It will be this beautiful day where we are with God. We are to look forward to it. And so meal number five, marriage supper of the Lamb. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to enter into our time of, of communion together. And what's going to happen is the guys are going to play a song. And as they're playing, I just want to encourage you to maybe sit and, and read some scripture during this time of song. I also want to encourage you as they're playing this song to think on the Lord, meditate on the Lord. I want to encourage you just to, to take it slow. Uh, you don't have to just jump up here, but take it slow and think on the Lord. And, and you might want to come up with someone. Maybe you want to come up with somebody and, and just take a minute to, to pray at the table together. Remember, it's communion with God and with others. And so you kind of gather around the table. Maybe that someone is a spouse, a friend. Come up with someone or you can just stand there. One of, one of us guys can, can pray for you or with you. Um, we would love that. But take it slow and let's, let's do this just fully aware of the depth of meaning of this historic Christian practice, the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist. Now, Right before we go into it, let me just review again, all the way back to the beginning, thinking through just the significance of meals to kind of prepare your minds for what we're doing. Think through the significance of meals again. The, the Lord's table, reserved for Christians, symbolic of the, the, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ died for us, brutal death, body broken on the cross, shedding his blood, but yet we can be celebrative in this meal. But think about what he did. And what this meal does. It, for us, is a meal of fellowship. It's a meal where we fellowship with God and with each other, united by his spirit, united by our faith in Christ. It's one of those meals of hospitality where God practices the hospitality, where God has set the table with his finished work on the cross, where God serves us like we've been looking the past three weeks, Matthew 20, 28. Jesus came not to be served, but to what? to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's a meal of fellowship. It's a meal of hospitality. It's a meal of equality. It's a meal of equality. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is very careful to say there is no, there, there is no one who is greater when we come to this meal. We are unified in Christ. Paul in Galatians three twenty eight. so there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one. In Christ Jesus, so we are unified around the proverbial table. It is also a meal of family where we are now adopted as, as children of God, where we are now made brothers and sisters of Christ as we gather around the table. And it's also, of course, a meal of celebration. So as we take of communion together, we'll then move into a time of singing some songs, some celebrative songs of what Jesus did and who he is. And so don't forget... The next, the last step is that as you leave the doors, our communion extends into our homes. It extends into restaurants. It extends into our culture as we have communion together um, and under the, the, the Holy Spirit and united in our faith in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for communion and this practice that you have ordained for us to engage in, to remember you, to think of you, to fellowship, commune with you and each other. God, I pray that it would just be a powerful time in our lives, something that we, we look forward to as we do it here currently, monthly. God, thank you for it. God, thank you for the work of Jesus, his body that was broken for our sins, nailed to a cross in our place. He didn't deserve it, but he did it. Thank you for the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that as historically blood has covered sin, your blood covers sin once and for all so that this doesn't have to continue. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you. God, we also thank you so much that you have called us to your table as your children. And that we come as your children. We come unified as brothers and sisters in Jesus. Lord, thank you for that. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this, this room this morning that doesn't know Jesus, has never come to Jesus and said, I want you, I want to follow you. Lord, I pray that maybe even symbolically coming to the table this morning would be their point of salvation. That they would say, I come not to receive salvation in, in these literal elements, but to receive salvation in the work of Jesus. And I trust in that. And I just take this step in walking down these aisles and, and partaking in communion just as a way of saying, yes, Lord, I'm coming to your table. I'm receiving it. So God, I pray that you would even this morning have some people say, I want Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be saved by Jesus. Thank you for that grace that you give us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remember that, that last supper together says they sing a hymn after having the meal. So we'll have the meal, and then we'll sing uh, in celebration at the end. So what we're going to do is, is, as these guys uh, begin to sing, you can sit, you can read, you can meditate on the Lord, um, you can pray, whatever you feel led to do. At any point during the song, you can just get up. And again, take it slow, no rush. You can get up, come before the table, take a piece of the bread, and think on the body of Christ. Then you can drink of of the wine and think on the the shed blood of Jesus. We also have trash cans on either side that you can put the cups in when you're done. I want to take some time to pray there at the table as well.